Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jason Faber, and it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Genesis 18 is the text before us, working our way through this book slowly but surely. And this morning, we'll be looking at the first 15 verses of Genesis 18. And so I'm going to read that section for us. But before I do, I remind you, as always, church, This is the word of the living God, that he has preserved for us throughout the ages, that he has ordained for us to hear this morning as his people. So let us tremble before his word and let us come joyfully and expectantly that he will use it by his spirit to draw us closer to himself. Genesis 18 verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham, By the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. And wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes, and Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, And my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Saints of God, the word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us now. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, We acknowledge that in all ages, you have taught the hearts of your people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant to us now, we pray, the same Spirit, so that we ourselves might have a right understanding of your word. To the end that we would rejoice forever in the comfort that you have given us. We ask these things through the merits of Jesus the Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you. And for his sake, amen. Well, one of the hardest realities of the Christian faith, one of the hardest commands for us to obey, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Perhaps you know it, where we're commanded to walk not by sight, but by faith. To not live our lives and make decisions based on what we can smell and touch and taste or experience, 
but to live our lives in light of the promises that God has made. To live our lives in light of what he has said is true in his word. And that's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us because oftentimes our circumstances, that which we can see, seem to make the promises of God being fulfilled seem impossible to us. You look at your circumstances and you look at your own weakness and you go, how is the Lord going to keep these incredible promises? And while we may not call into question the Lord, what often happens is we get so focused on these things that we seem to forget God's promises and we lose sight of who he is. Because in the day to day, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with what we can see. And the reason I bring this reality up is because we've seen the Lord's gentle dealings with Abraham so far in Genesis as he's struggling to walk by faith and not by sight. And we've seen how the Lord has brought him along so that we're literally watching the Lord sanctify Abraham. And I hope you're encouraged by that because I've been encouraged as we've seen that. But here's the thing. As we jump into Genesis 18, The focus shifts a bit from Abraham. It's still on Abraham. But the focus here really is on Sarah. Where is Sarah in believing this promise? Where is she at? Literally the question that the Lord asks in verse 9, where is Sarah your wife? And what we're going to see is that she's behind Abraham. She's not believing the promise. The Lord hasn't brought her along in the sanctification process like he has Abraham. And the Lord's not content to leave her behind. He wants to bring her along. He's covenanted with this family. And so he's going to bring Sarah along. And what we're going to see is he is going to strengthen and encourage her faith in his promises through two means. And there are two means, brothers and sisters, that the Lord uses to strengthen our faith as well. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that He draws near to us. He draws near to us. The Lord appears to Abraham and He shares a covenant meal with us. And we're going to see the rich spiritual significance, doctrinal significance of that covenant meal. But the second way that We are strengthened and we see Sarah is strengthened. And we find this in verses 9 through 15 is that she's lovingly rebuked by the Lord. And we could expand that a bit and say, really, he speaks to her. Because he does speak the promise. He does speak the gospel to her as well. But the emphasis here is also on that loving rebuke that he gives her. To expose her unbelief. That she might repent of it and grow And deepen in her relationship with the Lord. And so really, ever since chapter 17, we've been dealing with this question of, the Lord claims in Genesis 17 verse 1, to be God Almighty, El Shaddai. And so we've been looking over the last couple weeks, it's not too much for the Lord to save unbelievers. That's impossible for us, but not for Him. And it's impossible for us to justify ourselves, but it's not impossible for God to justify us through His Son. And really the focus this morning is, it's not impossible for God to sanctify us either. Despite our circumstances, despite our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil, despite our own indwelling sin, the Lord is strong. He is mighty enough to sanctify us. Nothing's too hard for Him. And He does that by drawing near to us and by speaking His word of rebuke and gospel to us. And so I pray that we would be encouraged by that and know that he's going to do this in our lives even as we see this unfold in Sarah's life. So let's look first then in verses 1 through 8 at how the Lord graciously draws near to us to strengthen our faith and to sanctify us. Look first at verse 1 with me. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent In the heat of the day. So the narrator gives us a pretty important fact, truth here for us. That the Lord is drawing near. He's going to appear 
to Abraham. This isn't the first time that this has happened in the book of Genesis. It's not the first time that the Lord's appeared to Abraham. We call this a theophany. It's not that God has a body and now lets us see it. It's that this is a manifestation of his presence. Think of that burning pot earlier in Genesis. Think of the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night. He's manifesting his presence to his people in a way that they can see. And that's what's about to happen to Abraham here. And what's Abraham doing? Well, he's sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. This is an agrarian society. They work hard physically. And in the heat of the day, it's a great chance to take a break, to take a siesta. And so that's exactly what Abraham is doing here. But his rest is interrupted by some travelers, some weary travelers who arrive. We see that in verse 2. So look there with me. He, being Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, as this narrative unfolds throughout chapter 18 and into chapter 19, what we learn is that one of them, one of these three men that Abraham addresses as the Lord, we'll get to that in a little bit, that's the theophany of the Lord. And then these other two men that are with him are angels. We know that because in chapter 19, they go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to check things out. And so these are the two angels that show up at the door of Lot himself. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But we know that these are their identities. And notice that as Abraham sees them, he runs to them. He's running to them. He sees them. They're approaching. They're travelers. He runs to them. He doesn't send a servant. He doesn't yell for Sarah and say, hey, Sarah, go get them. No, what we're seeing here is a beautiful picture of hospitality, which was highly prized. Really, you could be judged, and that's why we see so many tales, stories that exist today where a guest who is more than they appear to be shows up, and you're judged based on how you treat them. And so this is a test for Abraham, and he's passing it. He's running to them. He's quick to show them hospitality. He's eager to take care of these guests. And again, he doesn't know who they are. So he's not doing this because he knows this is a theophany. He's doing this because this is his regular practice. We're seeing fruit, good works in Abraham's life because of the faith that God has wrought in him. We continue to see this fruit and this eagerness in verse 3. Look there with me. And said, so Abraham now says to them, O Lord, O Adonai, if I have found favor in your sight... Do not pass by your servant. So apparently he's able to suss up which one is the leader, probably through dress or probably through a variety of things. And he addresses that one as Lord. And so he says, please, if I've found favor in your sight, don't keep going. See, it was an honor for Abraham. Stay here and let me take care of you. And so he's humbling himself before them calling them Lord, and bowing himself to the earth. We see just this over-the-top hospitality. And he says, stay with me so I can refresh you. Look at the refreshments he offers in verses 4 through 5. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So what does he offer them? Well, everything that you would want as a traveler. He says, look, I camp under the shade of these trees. Come and enjoy that. Cool off a little bit. And I'll bring you water. Precious, precious resource. Even nowadays, especially when you're traveling, you want to travel light, and so they're probably thirsty. And I'll bring you water too, not just to drink, but to wash your feet with. How refreshing that must be when you're walking in sandals all day in the dirt and other things. And so he's saying, I want you to be refreshed and I'll bring you a morsel of food. Let me do this honor to you. And so they say, yes, we'll stay and we'll allow you to do that. I want to address you children. It might seem a little odd, but I don't think it's odd. And point out to you, notice the good manners of Abraham here. Do you notice Abraham... 
He's not waking up from his nap going, man, I've been working hard all day already. I want to take a nap. And he's not saying, man, this is all the food that I was going to enjoy. What about what I want? Me, me, mine, mine. He's showing good manners here, isn't he? And what are good manners? Good manners are nothing more. I want to sum up good manners as the second great commandment. First great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Good manners are just culturally appropriate ways of loving your neighbor. And so we ought to learn from Abraham's example here and put the needs of other people before ourselves. Now the adults are going, that was just for the kids? That's for us as well. Yes, that's for all of us. I love what Matthew Henry in his commentary on Genesis had to say about this. He says, note, religion does not destroy. Some people seem to be, you know, once we are Christians, we don't have to fear man anymore. And so who cares about those good manners? What? Matthew Henry says, religion does not destroy, but improves good manners and teaches us to honor all men. Decent civility is a great ornament to piety. And so Christians above all people who know that all are made in the image of God ought to be marked by good manners and decent civility as a beautiful ornament to piety and the gospel. Now, having said that, notice how quickly Abraham and his family act to serve their guests. You notice three times, this is definitely there in the Hebrew, and so it's good that it's also there in the English. You notice that the word quick, some variation of it, is used three times. And you notice that Abraham is running as he's preparing these things for his guests. And so let's look at that actually in verses 6 through 8. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So one of the things I want you to notice, other than the swiftness, the eagerness, he's a cheerful giver, he's also a very generous giver. What did Abraham say he was going to give them? Verse 5, let me bring you a morsel of bread. This is way more than a morsel of bread. This is a feast. This is a party meal. He's literally gone and slaughtered the fattened calf like the father of the prodigal son does. In Luke's gospel. I mean, this is an extravagant meal fit for a king. And so here's a pretty good way to live your life, by the way. Under promise and over deliver. A little wisdom from Abraham this morning. Under promise, over deliver. Anyway, then what do they do? He says, sit under the shade of the tree. Let me refresh you in these ways. And where's Abraham? He's sitting off to the side, standing As if to say, if you need anything, I am your servant, here I am. He's already said that with his words, and now he's shown this in his actions. And isn't this a beautiful picture of a hospitable family? This is a family event. This couldn't have happened without Sarah and the other family members working together. We'll talk more about hospitality in just a little bit. But lest you think that this is all about hospitality, this is secondarily about hospitality. The primary focus here is what? Don't forget Genesis 18 verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him. What we're to understand here is that this is a covenant meal. That the Lord is drawing near. He's appearing before Abraham to say, we're at peace. I've entered into this covenant relationship with you, Abraham. And all of these promises that I've made with you, they spring forth from that relationship that's marked by peace. Though you were once a pagan, that's what Abraham was. But now I've sought you, brought you into covenant, and I draw near to you to share a meal with you to show we are at peace. And this is all the way throughout, not just ancient history, this is all throughout the Old Testament. 
And we don't have time to go through all the references that I actually wrote down, and I didn't even write down all of them, but think, for example, of the Passover. We just have to jump forward one book to Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, you remember the final plague that the Lord has said he will bring upon the Egyptians who have enslaved his people Israel and refused to let them go, is that the firstborn of every family who doesn't slaughter a Passover lamb and then put the blood on the doorposts, their firstborn son will die. The angel of death, as it were, will strike them down. And so the Lord says, Israel, my people, slaughter this lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and do you know what they're supposed to do the night of the Passover? What are they supposed to do with the lamb? They're supposed to make a meal out of it. They're supposed to eat. And so the Lord is saying, we have peace. You have peace with me. Though you deserve to be struck down, I won't strike you down. We see this again after the Lord enters into the covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. After the people have blood sprinkled on them and they say, all this we shall do. You may have missed this in Exodus, but in Exodus 24, 11, we read that the people beheld God. Okay, wait a minute. The Lord appeared to him, to Abraham. So now the covenant people are beholding God and then they ate and they drank. The Lord is saying, you've been in the covenant with me since Abraham. We're at peace. And so here's a manifestation of my glory and eat this meal and be strengthened knowing we are at peace. And all of these promises issue forth from this. It's no different when we get to the New Testament, is it? Think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus believes. Zacchaeus repents. And what does Jesus say to Zacchaeus in Luke 19, verses 5 and 9? He says, I must stay at your house. Well, for sure, what are they going to do there? They're going to eat. Why? Because today salvation has come to this house. There's peace now here, Zacchaeus, with God. And so there's this meal that we're to share. Or think about Jesus' parable of the wedding feast. Jesus says the kingdom of God throughout the Gospels is like a great wedding feast that people are invited to. And eating it is a sign we're at peace with God. This same reality is picked up at the end of all things in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. Do you remember when the final peace comes? When Jesus brings great shalom upon the earth at the end of all things? What do we participate in together and before him? The wedding Supper of the Lamb. It's to show that we have peace with God. Or remember what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. And he with me. So you see the significance of these covenant meals. And brothers and sisters, as new covenant believers, we're invited to a meal as well, aren't we? As we come before the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, why does Jesus on the night of the Passover celebrate it with his disciples? Why does Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three say that we ought to continue to do this as a church? Because it's the means that the Lord has appointed saying, I've always shared meals with my people. To communicate peace to them. To draw near to them. Because it's as you are in my presence, fellowshipping and communing with me, that I sanctify you. That I change you. That I increase your faith in my promises. It's a seal that you have peace with God. Because of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And so that's why as a church we participate in it every single week. We think it's that important. Because what's happening? You're giving yourself to God and God is giving himself to you. The covenant is being renewed. And we're changed as he draws near to us. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing that nothing is too difficult for God. Not even our sanctification. Even though the world seems to be opposed to it 
and the flesh and the world and the remaining sin, the Lord says, come and eat, receive grace, and I draw near to you and I change you through these ordinary means of the bread and the cup. Do you see the significance? Do you see what's happening when we draw near? It's the same thing that was happening with Abraham and Sarah and God's people as they shared covenant meals with the Lord. Now, as a secondary application to go back to the hospitality, we ought to show hospitality to strangers. And we know that because Paul makes this application in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Thereby some have entertained angels. Now, he's talking about Abraham here with these three, and he's talking about Lot in chapter 19 as well. The hospitality, not that Sodom and Gomorrah shows, but that Lot shows, that Abraham shows. And so we ought to be people, families, Communities that show this kind of hospitality. Because what are societies made up of? They're made up of families. And so one of the ways, this isn't the ultimate goal, but one of the ways you change a society is by being hospitable. And we ought to be hospitable because God welcomed us when we were strangers. And so we ought to welcome strangers as God has welcomed us. There is a nuance that you have to exercise wisdom lest somebody come up and say, wait a minute, what about? You do have to exercise wisdom, no doubt. But we ought to be marked as a hospitable people. And we ought to be hospitable as Christians, not only because the Lord has welcomed us, but we want to follow Jesus' example. And make no bones about it, Jesus is our substitute. He is our substitute. He was the only human being who was perfectly hospitable. A beautiful example of this is, again, the Passover. Who prepares the Passover meal for his disciples? Jesus does. He's the one that waits on them. That's where he says that famous line of his, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And then what does he do? He strips himself and washes their feet. The job that the lowest of the low would do. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to follow Jesus, our substitute, and our example. Indeed, as his spirit is at work in us, we will grow more and more into being hospitable people. And don't get the order wrong here, okay? Abraham is not being hospitable so that he can be in a covenant relationship with God. No, he is in a covenant relationship with God, and so he is being hospitable. The root is faith, the fruit is good works. One of those good works is hospitality. So we've seen first how God increases our faith or sanctifies us to believe his promises by drawing near to us in this covenant meal. Secondly, let's see how God changes us in how he lovingly rebukes us. And we could even say it more generally, speaks his word to us. But let's pick up in the story in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. So what do we see here? We see the Lord's intent now. You may have thought, all right, well, this is just all about Abraham in verses 1 through 8. But now in verse 9, we realize, who's the Lord seeking to draw near to in a unique way? It's specifically Sarah. And so he reveals his intent To know that I want her within earshot. I want her to hear what I have to say. And so Abraham says, well, she's in the tent. And by the way, we probably have some insight here now. Abraham and Sarah are probably going, hey, there's probably more to our visitors than meets the eye. Because at this point, Sarah's name hasn't been used. How do they know Sarah's name? Huh, that's kind of interesting. So now they're probably realizing Our guests aren't just normal, everyday people. And so, the Lord continues the conversation. He continues to speak in verse 10. Look there. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So what do we learn here? Sarah hasn't really believed that a child will be born to them. And so the Lord wants her to hear the promise again. 
The Lord obviously wants Abraham to hear this as well. But Sarah hasn't believed this. The Lord knows this, so he wants her to hear it. And notice, by the way, that the Lord progressively reveals more and more content of the promise. Initially, the promise is what? You're going to have a son. Okay, Abraham says, I'm going to have a son. Well, maybe I can have that son through Hagar? Maybe, because Sarah's barren? No, not through Hagar, but through Sarah you'll have a son. Okay, now we know what and we know who. And now the Lord is revealing here what? The when. You're going to have a son, Sarah, about this time next year. So notice how the Lord progressively reveals it. And notice also how the Lord reminds his people again and again and again and again of the promise. We're slow to believe it, aren't we? We're slow to remember it. We are quick to forget it. And children, you understand this reality, don't you? Isn't it hard to remember everything your parents tell you? Judging by the behavior of my two-year-old and my five-year-old, from first-hand experience, I would say it's hard. And so what are your parents supposed to do? Are they supposed to get impatient with you and angry with you? Unfortunately, sometimes we do, and we have to repent before God and you for that. But what we ought to be doing is patiently reminding you and patiently instructing you in the way that you ought to go. Let me give you an example. Maybe some of you are catechized by your parents. We catechize our kids. And I don't ask them the question once and tell them the answer once and then expect them to have it memorized. We do some of the same questions, and we do it with songs sometimes, so then I have those. I can't even like read the question without singing it. And then the whole table erupts in song, which is kind of fun. But it's hard to remember that stuff, isn't it? Or think about some of the house rules that you have. Isn't it hard to sometimes remember those? I tell you what, if I had a dollar for every time I had to remind my five-year-old Benjamin to say please and thank you, I would be a rich man. I would be able to serve the church pro bono. That's the dream someday. But right, and so we have to be reminded of these things. And parents, it's a reminder for all of us, be patient as you do that. But aren't we this way? Aren't we slow, so slow to remember, so slow to believe? And yet we see our Heavenly Father patiently reminding His people again and again. And we ought to be a reflection of our Father to our children and patiently reminding them as well. Now, let's look at Sarah's response. The Lord patiently reminds her. What's her response? Look at verses 11 and 12. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So what's Sarah's response? Sarah hears this. She's in the tent. And what does she do? She chuckles to herself. It's not audible. It's internal. You've done this at work. Your boss tells you something or somebody tells you, your spouse tells you something, your kids. Keeping it to myself, but that's laughable. Sarah's not believing. And why is she not believing? She's not believing this promise because humanly speaking, it's impossible for her to have children. It's impossible For Abraham to have children. Those are the two reasons that we're given here for why she laughs. She says it's impossible. Of herself, she says that I am worn out. In verse 12, literally, she's saying I'm shriveled up. And the narrator says the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, Sarah's post-menopausal here. Her body is not producing the necessary ingredients For life to be created. And so she's literally saying, oh sure, (laughs) now that I'm past those years, maybe I had some hope when I was still able to do that. But now that the way of women has gone with me, sure, now I'm supposed to have the promised child. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) That's a response. She's responding like Zechariah. Remember Zechariah's response when the angel of the Lord draws near to him? Luke 1, 18 says, your wife is going to have a son. He's going to be a prophet of the Most High. He's going to be John the Baptist. And Zechariah's response is, I'm too old. Now the Lord's discipline of Zechariah is a little harsher. For nine months he doesn't get to speak until it's time for John to be named. Then the Lord opens his mouth. But her response here 
is not good. It's not like Abraham's in chapter 17 where he laughs and giggles in excitement like, I can't believe the Lord's going to do this. This is great news. No, she's scoffing. Psalm 1, we're not to sit in the seat of scoffers. She's scoffing here. So one reason is she's too old. The second reason is that Abraham is too old. In verse 12, she says, my Lord is old. And the narrator says of both he and Sarah, they are old and advanced in years. How old is Abraham? He's 99. How old is Sarah? She's 89. And so Sarah's saying, this is laughable because why? Not only can I not make it happen, he can't make it happen. Not going to get into the mechanics of that, but it's just the truth. And so she's like, this can't happen. It's not going to work. Now, it's really easy for us to look at this and go, how can she not believe? But, oh, brothers and sisters, are we not the exact same way? And so it's not hard to have a little sympathy towards her here. I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary on Genesis. He says, it is hard to cleave to the first cause... That is God himself. God is the first cause of everything. He's sovereign. He ordains everything that comes to be. He's the first cause. But it's hard to cleave to him when the second causes frown. This is the whole struggle between faith and sight. It's hard for us in faith to trust the first cause when we're looking at our circumstances and we're looking at ourselves saying, this is impossible. There's no way that this can happen. And yet, what should Sarah have done? And brothers and sisters, when our circumstances look impossible and our own remaining weakness and sin looks impossible and the Lord promises something to us, we ought to respond and say, even though the circumstances seem to contradict that, I'm trusting in the Lord for a miracle then. That's what she ought to have done. Now, John Calvin brings some helpful nuance here. He says, listen, Sarah's not chucking her faith here. She's not saying, I don't believe in God. I'm not in a covenant relationship with him. I'm turning away. She's not saying any of that stuff. She is disbelieving God, but she's not disbelieving God because she's thinking about him and thinking about his promise as she ought to. Again, in the weakness of her faith, she's so focused just on the things that she can see around her. And she's saying, though God's word says one thing, all of these things around me, Say it's impossible. And again, we do the exact same thing, don't we? Maybe there's a Christian virtue. In Galatians 5, we're told the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And you look at one of those and you say, you know, I'm just not gentle. Never have been. Never will be. I tell people the truth the way that it is, unvarnished. Tell them all the truth. So there's no way I'm going to be gentle. So you're saying, because of your weakness, the Lord can't do what he promises that he's going to do? Or maybe there's a particular sin. Here's the flip side of it. Yeah, maybe I've made a little progress in that sin. There's been seasons of my Christian life where I haven't participated in it. But I just don't think I'm ever going to be able to grow more and more. And so I'm despairing. And so we look at our circumstances and say, Lord, your promise isn't true that you're going to sanctify me. Or maybe we look at the ordinary means of grace. You might be thinking it right now. The Lord's going to change me through this sermon. The Lord changes me as we sing and as we pray and as we come to the Lord's table and participate in baptism. Those are the means that the Lord uses. They seem so ordinary and weak. And so we question the Lord's promises that he will use these means. Or perhaps most difficult of all, you look at a really hard providence in your life. The death of a loved one. The impending death of a loved one because of a sickness. Marital strife. Strife with your children. Chronic health issues. Struggling with the same sin over and over again. You look at it and you go, Lord, there's no way that your promise is true in this circumstance that you're working this for my good and for your glory. And so again... Are we any different than Sarah? We often, sadly, walk by sight instead of by faith. And yet, look at how the Lord responds to Sarah. I mean, we've already seen one response, that he tells her the promise. He's going to tell her the promise again. But look at verses 13 and 14. 
Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Well, now there's no doubt about who their guests are, is there? Clearly, this is someone that can know Sarah's thoughts, even though in verse 15 she goes on to deny that she laughed. All doubts removed at this point. And so what is the Lord saying? He's saying, is anything too hard for me? Sarah, is it too hard for me to know about your internal dialogue that you scoffed at my promise? That's not too hard for me. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. And listen to this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now you miss it in the English, but that word wonderful, same Hebrew root as the word hard in Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? No. I even know your thoughts. I know all things. I don't learn. I'm omniscient. And so the Lord says, it's not too hard for me to know your thoughts, Sarah. And the Lord says, it's also not too hard for me to create life where there is nothing but death. Because notice how the Lord continues to talk about the arrival of this son as if it's a certain thing written in his calendar. It's an appointed time. It's a scheduled time. And the Lord says, it's not too hard for me because I'm all powerful. Sarah, Sarah, you've lost sight of who I am. The God who makes this promise to you. The God who makes everything out of nothing. Genesis chapter 1. The God who, after giving all things their existence, then sustains them and leads them to their appointed end. Hebrews chapter 1. And so if I can do those things, it's not too hard for me to create life when that would be miraculous. I can do the impossible. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And so here's the rebuke that's given to Sarah. Now, Sarah doesn't respond well, does she? <laughs> this doesn't end on a high note for poor Sarah. Look at verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Sarah, I know you're lying. It's not too hard for me to know that you're lying. And so children, and this really shouldn't just be directed to the children, it should be directed to all of us. Brothers and sisters, it never pays to lie. You did the crime, you did the sin, don't add to it by lying about it. You ultimately don't get away with it. The Lord knows. And guess what? When Jesus comes back, we're told all that stuff's going to be made known to everybody. So don't add to the sin by lying. Don't follow Sarah's example here. Don't fear the discipline and the rebuke so much that you decide to sin even further. Instead, receive the rebuke. Receive the discipline. And yet, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know this. It's easy to end the sermon there and say, what a bummer for Sarah. But here's the thing. The Lord didn't leave her there either. What do we say the goal is? The Lord is drawing near. The Lord is speaking to rebuke and to comfort with his promise, specifically Sarah. He's singling her out. And so we may get to verse 15 and think, well, that didn't work out very well. Right, parents? Don't we do the best that we can, train our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Do everything in our power, and yet, guess what? We can't change their hearts, can we? But you see, the Lord's not that way. The Lord knows how to perfectly parent us. 
And here's the thing, his parenting, his care for us, his discipline, his encouragement, his drawing near is always effectual. It brings about the change that he wants. And you say, okay, great, Jason, that sounds real nice. Prove it to me from the text. All right, great. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Here's the evidence that the Lord brings Sarah along. Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12. By faith... Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Since she considered him faithful who had promised, when did that happen? It doesn't happen in the text here. Now, if you'll allow me a little speculation, I think it happens immediately after this. But that doesn't really matter. Because what we do know is that he gets her there. The drawing near in the covenant meal, the rebuke, the reminder of the promise, his word is made effectual in in her so that she's not just, (laughs) okay, she's a great example. Man, she makes it to the hall of faith by God's grace in Hebrews 11. Held up as an example of faith. But you see, who's the one that worked that faith in her? By the means that he appointed, it was God. And so God loves us enough to rebuke us and discipline us. I think of the example of Jesus rebuking Martha in Luke chapter 10. You remember that? Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's house and Martha's running all over the place and she's so distracted by the scene, isn't she? And Mary's at Jesus' feet. And Martha's like, Lord, tell my sister to help me. And Jesus gently, tenderly rebukes her, saying, Martha, you're concerned and anxious about so many things. But there's one thing that's most important, that's most needful. And it's me. And the Lord's doing the same thing here to Sarah. Here's another example, by the way, of God's tenderness to Sarah. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. I'm sure many of you, especially the wives, are familiar with this. But I wonder if you've put it in the context of Genesis chapter 18. Listen to 1 Peter 3 verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, Sarah's held up as an example. Godly women, you want to know how to honor the Lord by submitting to your husbands? Look at Sarah. (laughs) And yet, where does Sarah call him my Lord? It's in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12. And it's in the context of a bunch of unbelief. And yet, look at the kindness of God. That he takes out the one thing that she says in faith, by God's grace, the one good thing that God works in her in this statement where she respectfully refers to Abraham as my Lord. The Lord takes that, inspires Peter by the Holy Spirit to record that and say, women, emulate her example here. Isn't that an incredible example of God's grace and tenderness? I don't know about you, but that's not where my heart goes. And so what do we see the Lord doing? Covering the sin by the blood of Jesus. That's forgiven. And then actually rewarding us and commending us for that which he himself works in us. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't blow you away, (laughs) the grace and mercy and love and kindness and tenderness of God, it's just breathtaking because he does the exact same thing to us. And so in closing, what do we see? Again, nothing's impossible for God Almighty, for El Shaddai. Not our regeneration, not our justification, not our sanctification, not our glorification. And by the way, not the greatest wonder of all. What's the most impossible thing from a human standpoint? It's impossible for us to bridge the infinite gap between us and God for our sins. And yet, was that too wonderful for God to bridge? Was that infinite gap too much for God to bridge? No. And so, 
What is Jesus called in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? He's called the wonderful counselor. Same Hebrew root word that we saw in Psalm 139 that we see here in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Not even that is too wonderful for the Lord. Why? Because he sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, to assume a human nature and do everything necessary for that bridge to be gapped so that we are restored to God. Not even that is too wonderful for him. And so, if he can do that, he can do this. And he can do all the other things. He can sanctify us. And why does he promise things that are impossible for us to fulfill? (laughs) It's so when we see their fulfillment, It's a sure thing that we better boast in him and not us. Clearly the Lord did this because I couldn't. I can't sanctify myself. I can't keep myself. And yet he's kept me and he's sanctified me. And so he gets the glory. So saints of the Lord know that nothing is too hard for the God who has graciously covenanted with you and draws near to you. And lovingly rebukes you with his word. And he is using these means to make you more like his son from one degree of glory to the next. And he seeks us out. Like he sought out Sarah, leaving the 99 for the one. Therefore, since we serve such a God, let us walk by faith, by his grace, and not by sight. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do confess our sin of far too often walking by sight instead of faith. And we would despair if it were not for your promises. And yet, because you promise us that you will keep us, that you will sanctify us, that you've been doing that even as we've been worshiping, that you're going to draw near to us in just a moment in the table in a unique and special way, Lord, we pray that you would use these means to increase our faith and that we would give you all the glory. Thank you that nothing is too difficult for you. And thank you that you will sanctify us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.